Today on Ravelin's Fraud Academy podcast, we have David Birch, director at Consult Hyperion and author, advisor, and commentator in the fintech industry. When he's not running Consult Hyperion, a consultancy business he founded in 1986, he can be found speaking at industry events or moderating panel talks with fintech power players. Birch was recently named as one of the top 10 most influential voices in banking by the financial brand. In this podcast, we'll be discussing the impact of PSD2 and open banking, what the legislation means for fraud, and how fintechs can make the most out of PSD2. We're here today to talk about PSD2 and open banking. Yeah. Um, just want to start off with a bit of a challenge, if that sounds good. So, can you give me a two-minute summary on what PSD2 and open banking means? Well, broadly speaking, in order to get more competition into the financial services sector, various regulators, good examples being the European Union and the UK, have decided they want the banks to open up. And what that means is that other people, I mean with your permission of course, um, will be able to have access to your bank account. And the hope is that other people will then provide um, a wider variety of financial services, perhaps some better and more efficient financial services than the banks do themselves. Now, in the UK, we're in rather a special case. The UK is a little bit of a laboratory for all of this stuff because not only did PSD2 go into force in January in the UK, but also what we call the remedies went into force, which is the competition and market authorities own version of this. So quite independently from the European Union's efforts, the uh, Competition and Markets Authority here decided that they also wanted more competition in that space and actually took a a slightly more aggressive posture. So the nine biggest banks in the UK were supposed to, they haven't for a variety of reasons, but they were supposed to have opened up their interfaces from the 13th of January. So in theory, Uh, you can connect directly to people's bank accounts and interact with them. In practice, it's a slow start, it will take a while, not everybody's at the same speed. Absolutely. And who does PSD2 affect the most, in your opinion? Ooh, that's a very tough question. Um, Well, I suppose, I mean, the, the glib answer, of course, is the banks, because by having to open up their treasure trove of data um, to third parties, the banks stand to be at a substantial competitive advantage if they don't get their act together and do something about it. Because you know, on the one hand, if I'm a bank, if I have to open up and, and allow other people to access all of this data, I, I lose you know, part of my competitive edge. If other people can see that data, they can do the same risk management I can, they can do the same transaction analysis that I can. You know, what, what, what's my advantage over them? On the other hand, you could say, well, you know, banks have a very trusted position. Um, if, they, if they did it right, then actually banks accessing each other's accounts would be good for us, right? So I have my Barclays app, and I really like my Barclays mobile app. I mean, I use it every day. I happen to have an account at Nationwide as well. If I could see that Nationwide account in my Barclays app, actually that would be better for me. And why would Barclays or Nationwide be worse off? because of that, you know. So, so the glib answer, who does it affect most, is banks. Um, but of course, if you're trying to think long term and more strategically, there are other categories of people who can operate at scale, and if they have access to that data, can deliver very different kinds of services. 
And the obvious categories of that are um, what people call the challenger financial services organisations. I, I actually think this makes life harder for them, not easier to be, to be honest. If you were one of the challengers and you're just, you know, you're a sexy, dynamic, go-ahead fintech bank and you're competing against legacy incumbent dinosaur, can't turn an oil tanker bank, you're in with a shot. But of course, because of open banking, now you're not. You're competing with other people who are good at dealing with consumers at scale. So I think it makes it a little harder for the challengers. The other example, of course, is the, is, is the internet giants coming into that space. And you can see why that would be because for example, if you give Facebook uh, permission to access your bank account, then when you're sitting in WhatsApp and, and you know you owe me 20 quid, you'll just do like plus 20 quid in your WhatsApp and it will show up in my bank account. You won't be bothered to come out of Facebook, run some stupid bank app and log in and blah, blah, blah. So since that's where people are, that's a genuine threat, I think. Um, but the other category, of course, is retailers because they have the scale and the touch points. And if you know, I've got my Tesco app, and Tesco say, oh, um, can we have access to your bank account? Next time you use your Tesco app, we don't want to bother those nice people at Visa and Mastercard because they're very busy processing all those transactions. So why don't you just let us take the money out of your bank account? Well, actually, retailers can afford to incentivize fairly heavily down that path because if you, if you look at what they pay in card fees and so on, they can afford to give that to you in loyalty points and stuff like that. So broadly speaking, it's tough for banks unless they get their act together and have a decent strategy, which I'm not saying they won't. I think it makes it a little more difficult for the challengers, to be completely honest. I think it's good for the internet giants. I think the government may have unwittingly, um, unwittingly sort of challenged one oligarchy by creating another. Um, and it's potentially very good for people who have scale with real consumers, the big retailers. You know, I mean, big like Amazon and Tesco, people like that. Speaking a little bit about banks, do you think PSD2 will create a competitive ecosystem for banks or will we see more collaborations happening? Well, I mean, I'd like to think there's plenty of opportunity for collaboration in that, but I'm not sure that's how the kind of internet power law operates. Because if, for example, Google go along and say, oh, you know, if you give us access to your bank account, we'll give you all these special offers and deals and blah, 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 or whatever. I mean, Google know how to manage these massive amounts of data and process it. And, you know, they've got deep mind and all, all this sort of stuff. So I think it's going to be very, very hard for, for, for little fintechs to compete in that space if they're too generic. I mean, they have to have some, some very special domain-specific expertise, like you guys have in that area. They've got to have something very specific um, to get into these kind of partnerships now. Who, who's going to get like a... Uh, look, if, if you go to Amazon, you can see what's coming, right? You go to Amazon and you go to buy a telly or something, and Amazon says, oh, do you want to pay for that now, or do you want to pay for it over 10 interest-free installments? And I'll click 10 interest-free installments. And then something will turn up in my email that's 200 pages long, which I'll never read. But if I got to page 199, I'd discover it's not actually Amazon lending me the money. It's Goldman Sachs or, or, or somebody else. Like, for the consumer, that's quite a good experience, you know. And so partnering with Amazon in that space has to be a better 
way forward than trying to challenge people like that. You think I'm being too defeatist on that? I'm not sure. I mean, those guys have got scale. They really do. And I want to talk a bit about PSD2 and fraud. So sure. what does PSD2 mean for fraud liability for banks and other payment providers? Well, actually, this, I, this is actually slightly bad news for banks because the way PSD2 works, I mean, we're simplifying it greatly, but, but broadly speaking, banks end up with all the liability. So they have to make absolutely sure that their authentication processes are absolutely, you know, rock solid because... Um, because they now there are some wangleable things here because retail, you know, provided PSPs, for example, keep their fraud levels down to I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, it's 12 basis points or something, isn't it? Um, if the PSPs keep their fraud down to a very low level, they can be spared, uh, you know, some of this more rigorous authentication stuff, which potentially could put customers off. We don't want customers walking away from shopping carts because all of a sudden they're asked to take a photograph of their passport and measure their blood pressure and all this sort of thing. So, um, so there's every incentive to um, use technology to get those fraud rates down to those kind of low levels and take advantage of the opportunities of PSD2. So, so that, that's the interplay, I think, between fraud and PSD2. Of course, when it comes to open banking, there's, there's, there are some other problems there. Because obviously, if I'm going to give you permission to access my bank account, um, how do I know who you are? How do you know who I am? How does the bank know that I gave you permission to access the bank account? How does the bank know who you are? Blah, blah, blah. How do you know it's a real bank? And et cetera, et cetera. So with open banking, some of those identification, authentication, authorization issues are complex. And I, and I, you know, I wouldn't say as a whole, we've got to the bottom of those, yeah. And we've spoken about banking and the emphasis of PSD2 and what it means for banks. What, um, I guess, expectations or behaviours do you expect to see from fintechs now, either emerging fintechs or ones that have been in the field for quite a few years? Well, you know, I'm not a great expert on startups and, and uh, how to get companies going and all that sort of thing, but. It does seem to me if you go to something like Finnovate, where you see the you see the startups making their pitches, a lot of them are very similar, and it's getting harder and harder, I think, to have something that stands out in that space, because a lot of the things that were interesting three, four, five years ago, uh, personal financial managers and things like that, it's just it, you see. I mean, I was a judge. I won't say the name of the company. But I was a judge for a for a a larger company's API competition for startups. I was blown away by what some of the well, some of the young people have produced. Yeah, because they live in this world of, of JSONs and APIs and web interfaces and so on. So for them to put together something really cool, um, it's not that hard. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, you're right. And so, you know, trying to build a business on the basis of that strikes me as being rather difficult. Um, you need something that's got more back office oomph, I think. And what advice would you give to fintechs and startups to make the most out of PSD2? Is it what you mentioned about being different and quite a saturated marketplace already, so coming up with something different or partnering with other fintechs or banks? Well, look, I, you know, I would, because this is you know, my, my background, so I would look at it from the bank strategy point of view and see which bits are missing 
and, and target those. So if you look from the bank point of view, the banks have got their hands full right now implementing the mandatory interfaces. So you can imagine it as a sort of two by two. You, you have to when we consult them, it's an EU regulation. Uh, if you imagine, so you've got like the mandatory and non-mandatory stuff, and then you've got the, what, what they call in the CMA remedies, the read and the read-write. So in other words, getting the account information or actually instructing transfers. So if you look at the mandatory stuff, the banks have got their hands full doing all of this mandatory stuff. And everybody always says to me these kind of things, you know, you, you get rich by selling shovels in a gold rush. So building the tools to help banks put those APIs into place and so on seems like a reasonable uh, uh, way forward. When you look at the non-mandatory stuff, you have the non-mandatory payments related stuff where you do see some banks already, Nordea is a good example, you know, beginning to bring some new APIs into play for things like foreign exchange and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, very tough to compete in spaces like that. You know, they've, they've already got scale. There's already other players in that kind of area. So you tend to want to look away from the payment stuff, I think. I mean, the margins there are thin, heading towards zero. So the question is, what could banks do, which isn't mandatory, isn't the stuff that they're all really focused on right now, where you could build some tools, um, and it's not particularly payments related. Now, there's a number of different categories for that sort of thing. I personally tend to be obsessed with the sort of identity, trust, reputation kind of aspects. But there's also the data mining, cloud, machine learning kind of stuff. What, what, could, you, what could you deliver customers if you could look at their data and, uh, and, and, and add real intelligence into it and those kind of things. So I, I, would, I would say, you know, a lot of the mandatory stuff, I don't know, it's already going on. There's lots of players in that space. The non-mandatory payment stuff, Maybe, but margins look a little thin on that sort of thing. I think looking away from looking away from payments to the more you know data stuff probably is the best way forward. And mm. um, what are the consequences of PSD two for retailers? I know we touched on on this a little bit, but to go really into in depth. I mean, I actually think that PSD two is is a big deal in the retail space. Um, but, it, but I, I don't know if all the retailers really have a good strategy into place towards it yet. So Consult Hyperion did a survey at the end of last year with some of the larger merchants and said, it, I mean, most of them, I mean, nine-tenths of them wanted to use PSD2 to basically reduce card fees. I mean, they basically wanted to use it to cut out card networks. But three-quarters of them said they wanted to use it to reduce the impact of fraud and data breaches. Uh, and when you, when you look at the knock-on costs of fraud and data breaches, I mean, I can see why that's very attractive to them as well. There was an Accenture survey earlier in the year that said half of the merchants they surveyed wanted to use, well, they wanted to use the customer account data to provide personalised services at PARs, and I can, I can see that sort of thing as well. So I think, you know, at the high level, some of the bigger retailers have started looking at it and wondering, well, okay, well, what could we do with it? I think possibly focusing on the card fees is a little tactical um, and short term. Uh, I think those other things, you know, like fraud, like you know, more personalization, more customization, are probably the areas where there are some big winners to emerge. Mm. And I would just like to finish by how we started with a bit of a challenge. So how would you describe PSD2 in three words? <laughs> That's quite a tough one. All right, just off the top of my head then, how about um, enforced 
regulatory competition. Fantastic. <laughs> it's not, but thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for joining our podcast. It's been great to speak to you. Thank you again for being here. You're welcome.